All right, well, thank you for your questions. So I'll unpack some of this a little bit more. Um, so maybe a brief history of mindfulness is a good place to start. A brief history of mindfulness in the context of probably what we're used to, which is uh, Americans practicing Buddhism in, in, uh, in the last 50 years, which is really where these practices come from. Insight meditation has been around for 40, 50 years, and Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Ruth Dennison, and we have all these teachers who have been loosely uh, practicing these practices. And, uh, and in that history of time, there, have, there has been some trends in the insight tradition uh, that have occurred over periods of time. Um, in fact, when I sat retreats 20 years ago, they didn't use the word mindfulness so much. Um, there, if you got the brochure from IMS in the mail in the early 90s or the late 80s, there were no retreats called mindfulness retreats. They were called insight or vipassana retreats. And mindfulness really entered the lexicon in, in the everyday language because of the popularity of the, in, in the late 70s and the early 80s, John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction and his actually really brilliant strategy of introducing Buddhism into Western medicine through the guise of mindfulness. Sort of some stealth dharma from JKZ. <laughs> and, uh, you know, really brought these practices to the mental health world and to pain management. And um, so because of that and the popularity and the studies and the success and people like Richard Davison doing these studies on the brain and all this, uh, basically uh, saying that mindfulness is essentially really good for you and you might want to give it a shot. Um, and in the last decade or so, there has been a, a very large trend um, around mindfulness and its teachings known as the Satipatthana Sutta, which is in the Pali Canon, uh, which is a, thousands of pages of teachings that come from the earliest school of Buddhism, uh, the Theravadan tradition, and, and more currently what's called early Buddhism. Uh, Satipatthana is like, you know, 20 pages of the 5,000 some odd pages. And it's really been kind of... Uh, to some degree worshipped in the, it's very trendy in the insight world and Satipatthana is the direct path to liberation it's like I want to get on that path um, and so that we find um, that as a culture in a society and to some degree as American Buddhists if I could even say that that, the, that we've really kind of doubled down on the mindfulness box as sort of being, of all the Buddha's teachings, mindfulness is the one that you need, it's the one that you got to have, and it's in the Satipatthana, and that, you know, the other 4,880 pages are sort of like, eh. <laughs> There's a lot in there. The Buddha had a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, and I teach the Satipatthana. I, I really like the Satipatthana. I'm not here to give a derogatory talk on mindfulness or the Satipatthana, but I, I want to widen the view a little bit wider so that way we might be able to see some of the other things that we're missing out on and some of the ways in which we might want to expand our mindfulness view uh, and really include these metta practices or uh, the attitude of non-harming, the experience of non-harming. And even nowadays, if you go to Spirit Rock's website or IMS's website or any retreat center's website, there's, you know, if there's 28 retreats a year, 26 of them are mindfulness retreats and two of them are metta retreats. Um, and that's been a very much a trend in the insight world. Um, and so 
I don't know about you or what your experience is, but I have found um, that in many ways mindfulness practices have really just pointed out all of the ways in which I'm dissatisfied, all of the ways in which I'm unhappy, uh, all of the ways in which my mind is actually really quite mean and abusive to me, um, and all of the ways in which I don't have a really great relationship to myself, uh, and sometimes not a great relationship to the world. In mindfulness of that, uh, hasn't been that helpful in overcoming that. In fact, at times I find it's more agitating. And I just want to order a pizza and watch Netflix. And forget all this mindfulness, Buddha Dharma business. It's too hard. It's just too hard. I just want to go back to sleep. So we check out into these behaviors that we, um, that we medicate ourselves and we do various behaviors and some of them destructive, some of them not so much, but to some degree in a vain attempt to not be with experience. Have you had that experience yourself? So when we look at um, the way practice works, that even when we look at the Satipatthana or we look at the four foundations of mindfulness, and maybe I'll just give you an overview if you're not familiar with the structure. The four foundations of the mindfulness, very quite simple structure, but the Buddha teaches us to train our attention and awareness in what's called either frames of reference. There's different frames of reference or there's different pastures. So there's ways in which we can sort of categorize where we are paying attention in our experience. And so the first and most obvious one, of course, is the body and the breath. Body awareness, breath awareness. First gear, <laughs> slow. You know, just like the breath is so slow. Just, when's that dude going to ring the bell? It's just like breathing in, breathing out. It's like, I got it, dude. <laughs> but do you? Do you have it? Have you got that one down yet? I don't have it down so good. You know? And so we look at that, the Buddha is saying, to, to really bring awareness and to absorb and to get this present time experience and to actually try to arrive into the life that you're having rather than the life you could be having or should be having, if only. And then we see what arises out of these sensations. We could say the first foundation is about sensations. Because we have sensations, we have a body, we have feelings, which is the second foundation of mindfulness, or the second pasture, or the frame of reference. I like to think of them as frames of reference. Looking at experience just through the lens of what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. Right? Every moment has vedana. Sati Vedana, mindfulness of Vedana, pleasant, unpleasant, or, or what's often called neutral, but actually is more accurately defined as neither. It's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's just, let's be honest, boring, right? <laughs> Ordinary, unsatisfying. Right? And so we can see that that's uh, a way in which we can practice. You learn a lot about yourself by being aware of what you're resisting and what you're clinging to. That drives everything, doesn't it? That's the, the blind driver of life, is the pleasure-pain dichotomy. And because we have feelings, what arises out of that into the emotional cognitive experience, so we go from the sensations into the impressions created by those sensations at the sense doors into the attitude of the mind that we have about those. The attitude of the mind, the mental states, 
or even the emotions, and that we see that, like, you know, this is where the Buddha is asking us to recognize the presence or absence of greed, hatred, and delusion. Pleasant, I want it. Unpleasant, got to get rid of it. Neutral, eh. Pizza and Netflix, why not? It's the big deal, what's the harm? And then we start to open to the Dhammas, which is a very which is the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which essentially can be summed up into two things where we're trying to overcome mental hindrances, we're trying to overcome craving and aversion and restlessness and lethargy and doubt, and we're trying to cultivate awakening factors. So in, in the cognitive experience, and the psychological experience, we're being asked to recognize these activities. Of, is, is, am I being hindered from being free? Or am I cultivating mindfulness and equanimity? And so that is the way that the Satipatthana is laid out. It's very didactic, it's quite cognitive, very instructional, and at times quite confusing. And so even though ethics or non-harming or uh, the goodness of the heart is, is definitely very much implied throughout Satipatthana and throughout the Buddhist teachings, it's not implicit in terms of showing you where and how to do that. So. When we start to use metta vipassana as a system for working with the foundations of mindfulness, we really start like right where I started, which was really trying to bring a sense of goodness, kindness, may I be at ease. And these are harder to find. It's easy to find the in-breath. But where's the kindness? Where's the non-harming? Where's the goodness? That's not as easy to find as the in-breath, is it? You thought finding the in-breath was hard. Now find that. And that's very right brain. That's very iconic. That's emotional. That's, uh, my first teacher calls it, in the Buddhist endeavor, the beautiful spiritual emotions, which is a term that I feel much more comfortable saying than I did many years ago. But we do have this, these beautiful spiritual emotions of kindness and compassion and forgiveness. They're there. They're not as easy to access as the in-breath, probably, or the out-breath, but they are there, and we want to incline towards those, recognize these qualities, and begin to integrate them into the body, into the breath. And this practice that I, I hear very, rare, very rarely spoken of, uh, which is, is, is dana, dana sila bhavana, which is the cultivation of generosity and goodwill, generosity and goodwill. Where if you live in a Buddhist country, if you live in, in Burma or Thailand or these places where Theravadan Buddhism is very popular, Sri Lanka, that you would learn these, the cultivation of generosity and uh, goodwill. Uh, I didn't grow up in a culture where they were cultivating generosity and goodwill. Uh, that's a foreign concept to me. I grew up uh, in a capitalistic culture where they, uh, it was the cultivation of greed and competition, also known as capitalism. So for me, these ideas uh, of having to cultivate generosity and goodwill into a meditative practice, I, you know, that's not so easy for most of us. And even to take 40 minutes or a half an hour, even to, to carve some time out of your busy schedule. Anybody here too busy? Not enough time? Anybody feel like you don't have enough of time? And let's add meditation to that falling Jenga pile of my life already. Just one more thing to put on the top of this whole thing before it all falls apart. Let's go ahead and do that. Now we've got to add some generosity and goodwill to that pile. <laughs> Dude, where is the pizza man? You know, it's like we can get overwhelmed. 
But this is very rich in the Buddhist tradition, this idea of, of, of generosity and goodwill. And to take that time every day and to come to groups like this and to cultivate these practices is really actually an act of generosity. It's, it, it's good for you and it's good for the world. Um, and to practice, if that's the intention of your practice, is because it's good for me and it's good for the world, that maybe that's good enough. And whether or not you're good at following the breath or... You know, this, you know, when we look at practices, it's like the Buddha teaches cultivation, but our society teaches evaluation. So when you meditate, do you cultivate goodness and mindfulness and awareness, or do you cultivate how well am I at this? You know, like, are they going to come in here and I'm going to get a score? You know, I can't tell you how hard it has been for me to turn down the voice in my head that just comes in when I'm practicing, because... What's going on down there? How you doing? Not too good. You're still not good at this. You actually should not be teaching this to anybody. <laughs> you know? It's just like, I'm like, who? Who and what? You know, still. And I, do I have aversion to that? Do I have an attitude about that? Or can I, can I also be kind to that character? Um... And so we practice in, in, in this way, and this becomes a really great baseline for this body anchor. Sometimes we use the word anchor. I use the word home base of my practice. That these, these are the ideas that I come back to. This is the starting point when I get distracted in my meditation practice or my busy life or I'm concerned about my relationships or my finances or the traffic and the weather. and the Oh, man, there's a lot of things to be concerned with. Then I don't have time to get back to the goodness and the... And the uh, presence and the, the kindness. I don't have time for that today because I have too many problems to solve, too many difficult people to deal with, you know, too much stuff to do. don't have time for that feeling. And so, you know, we, when we, we, we start to, to draw these out um, and integrate those in, into the practice. Um, so we started this evening by bringing that quality, that presence, and that ease uh, to the reality of change, to impermanence. Um, things change. Probably the most, conceptually, probably one of the most easiest Buddhist teachings to understand. Do things change? Of course. But how well do you behave, and how well are you able to cope with or to manage life when it actually does change. When the job ends and the rent goes up and the relationship ends or the, uh, the, the family member gets sick or whatever it is, how often do you think to yourself, do you pause and go, oh yeah, that's right, this happens. This is really hard right now. I need to take care of myself. I need to, I need to be with this experience. I, uh, that's not what I do. I fix and control and predict and blame um, because things are changing to uh, not my preference. Do you have preferences about how things are supposed to go and how things are supposed to change? I have a schedule on my phone that tells me everything that's supposed to happen in the future. <laughs> my phone is not that smart, it turns out. It's wrong all the time. I'm like, but it says here you are going to be here at 11.30. You know, it's just that we're so conditioned for things to be so neatly stacked up. And this is why we have such a hard time 
learning how to be with these experiences. So really like to sit quietly by yourself and to bring kindness and acceptance. Sometimes I think the nature of metta actually at the very core is about acceptance. My friend Josh Corda in New York talks about that a lot. Uh, that, that the spirit of metta is about to accept and to allow things to be the way that they are. And to and to even and even to just do that in thirty minutes is really quite difficult. And again, this this is, so this is the first characteristic, the characteristic of experiences and permanence, the Pali and the Pali it's anicca, which is actually a poorly translated term because nicha means absolute. It means absolute, and so one of the ways in which the time of the Buddha they were trying to figure out what was the absolute reality, what's this idea of absolution or God we would know it as. And the Buddha said there's no absolute, it's anicca, which translates as change or impermanence. But there, there is no absolute. It's not, if, if anicca, if change and non-absolution is a characteristic of all phenomenon, literally everything, you better get on board. You know, like I like to tell people, it's like, when you sit down at the negotiating table with reality, reality never sits down to hear your plea. It's just you, like, making demands. <laughs> and it never shows up to say, well, are there some things you would like to change around here, Dave? Let's, let's hear your list. No way. But I, but I oftentimes am delusion. I'm deluded. I'm not, I'm not, you know, not aware of what I just said is true. And I'll probably forget that before I go to sleep tonight. Right? And this is why, because of all of this, uh, we have dukkha. We have this characteristic of, of dissatisfaction, which I translate as messy. Things are messy. Life is messy. Relationships are messy. The mind is messy. The heart is messy. Uh, probably the most... Uh, other accurate translation is, is the word vulnerable. Is that, is that we, 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 we're, we get beat up a little bit along the way. We get wounded. Uh, we, we are, we're human beings. We, we don't get what we want. We often get what we don't want. Things don't go our way. Some of us get wounded in very, very horrifying and traumatic and really just uh, unforgivable ways. Um, and that, that's how it is. It's like that for many people. And so the range of dukkha is really quite broad. Everything from my back hurts a little bit to sitting here to uh, people that I've loved have died and uh, will die and that uh, people get abused and uh, the suffering. And so that's a pretty big, pretty, pretty big range of experience. Now, trying to just understand that conceptually, does very little in our ability to actually embrace that that's true. This is where knowledge and being smart and uh, is very limited, I think, for us. And I think that as a culture, we really value that. We value smarts and intelligence and, and what in Buddhism we, we call wisdom. But we forget in the Western paradigm often that wisdom also includes compassion. And that you can't outsmart your suffering. 
You just can't. Oh, but you try, don't you? He tried so hard. I just got to sort this out, man. I just got to. I'm just not worried enough about that. I just worried harder and better and smarter. But I'm stupid and I can't figure anything out. And that's why I'm suffering. And oh, man, what a mess. Again, with the pizza and the Netflix. Which is my go-to. That's when I know shit ain't right. When I'm like going like, you know, large pepperoni pizza. Let's watch an old John Hughes movie from the 80s and just forget. <laughs> just forget about it all. I'm sure you all have your version of that. That's my version of that. I have other versions as well, but we'll leave that, we'll leave that aside for now. Um, and so again, how can we bring, how can we prompt into this experience um, uh, kindness and in cooperation and acceptance and ease and, and really even trying to bring the metta into a um, compassion, which I think is actually a very advanced practice. I think that compassion and forgiveness are quite advanced practices. And I actually oftentimes feel that people are encouraged to cultivate them and to work with them too quickly. I think that we have to have a pretty healthy diet of metta bhavana, of kindness and sila before we start to... I think that sometimes we, we move too quickly into that. Um, forgiveness can be a practice that people, I feel, move, in, move into too quickly. We're not ready. There are certain experiences that I've had in my life where I wasn't ready to have compassion for, for some of those experiences. Um, and I think that we have to be honest with ourselves at times about where we feel willing or able to, to do that and to bring compassion to some of our, our challenges. Um, and sometimes we just say, maybe I'm, I'm just not ready for that yet. And then I can back into this metta practice. I can yeah, be at ease, breathe in, breathe out. Not that I'm having aversion towards it. I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm just not, I'm just not ready to go there yet. And this happens, I, I work in, to some degree in therapeutic circles and have worked in, in substance abuse and addiction treatment for a long time. And I, I feel very strongly that a lot of times uh, in the culture and in substance abuse treatment, they try to get people to move through their... Uh, suffering too fast and maybe you shouldn't do trauma therapy with the person who's been sober for two days just saying <laughs> maybe they're just not ready for that yet you know so I think that we have to be careful also about um, the type of uh, metta vipassana diet we try to acquire And then, you know, lastly, or, you know, to continue, the, uh, this, this, all of this, right, completely brings us and, and allows us to arrive into the self. Or I call the selves. How many of there are you in there? The worried self, the scared self, the jealous self, the happy self, the excited self, the betrayed self, the nobody understands me self, the compulsive caretaker self. Uh, what's that? The judgmental self. The judgmental self. The critical self. I could go on for hours. 
what are your top five? You know, it's just like, we, so that, but they're all not self. They're all anatta. They're not you. But when they arise, they feel very much like you, don't they? And this is again where sometimes I think people get caught into this mindful bypass of there's so much emphasis placed on this present moment, you know, the power of now, all of this pop culture stuff about being present. I don't believe that there's such a thing as a present moment. I've yet to find one. I've been looking hard. I don't believe it's there. I don't really subscribe so much to the idea of past and future. Uh, I think that the Dharma is a nonlinear experience and that we have to work with the conditions uh, that we are born in. And there's no clean slate moment. And I think that the, I th- and, I, and I to some degree am, am suspicious and a little bit critical of the, the secular mindfulness movement uh, where we see the sort of like happy person smiling, meditating on the beach as if like we're trying to create some total uh, present time blissed out experience. And we know that the Buddha certainly did not say present time awareness will guarantee pleasant time awareness. That's not how it is, is it? That's not how it is. And so when we, 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 when we even come into the context of, of now-ish or real time, uh, karmically we're, 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 just, we're coming into these conditions that, that have arisen and co-arisen and have, they co-arise and they pass and they come back and I remember this and I feel sad about that and I'm not really resolved about this and all. It's a big mess. But the mind wants to create a self. It wants to create an absolute self, either a person in which this is all happening to. And what does that mean about this person in which all of this has happened to? Well, I'm a person who has a bad feeling, uh, angry and upset and disappointed, always angry, upset and disappointed, shouldn't be angry, upset and disappointed, should be over that by now. Uh, Whose fault is it? Well, if she didn't do this and they didn't do that, I wouldn't be angry, upset and disappointed, but I am. I'm supposed to be a Dharma practitioner who's not supposed to be angry, upset, and disappointed, but I am. I'm not very good at this. Um, where's the clean slate of pleasant time awareness so I can just check out of all of it? And so we, you know, we arrive into these uh, experience of, of self and we become identified. Uh, and it, whatever version I'm, I'm experiencing, then that's the one that I am. And it's so confusing. It's so hard to keep up. You know, I, I don't know about you, but in, in, in the span of 12 hours, I can go from driving in my car with no traffic in LA with the air condition on, thinking I'm just great. I'm like, you know, Dave, man, you're really getting it together. I like your style. You're doing good. You got some stuff lined up. Things are working out. You're sorting it out. You're so good. <laughs> Five hours later, it's hot. I got in a fight with my girlfriend. I'm afraid about my finances. I'm like, dude, you totally are not doing life very good. You're just not good at life. I mean, you've been alive for 41 years and you still are really bad at this. And you teach people how to meditate? You're a fraud. You should just like, and I'm like, wait wait a minute. Who are you? What happened? 
how identified or how solidified or how, uh, how much am I going to believe that? And if you, if you track experience, uh, to some degree you could say in every single moment you're just going from one version to another. Convinced that each version is you. It's like this, it's, it's, it's this illusion that's almost impossible to not see. Again, it's the gestalt uh, picture. Where you look at the picture, it's either, I, I know there's a whole bunch of them, but there's like one where there's either like two candles and it's a, a vase, two vases or two heads. And it just depends how you look at it. And that's what the self and not self is. There's two ways of looking at it. Right? And so we have to hold that frame. It's like the, um, it's like the Big Dipper. You know, if you didn't know about the Big Dipper and you just looked up in the sky, you would just see seven or eight, however many stars there are, randomly located in the sky. And you'd be like, whatever, they're just dots in the sky. But if somebody says, no, check it out, it's the Big Dipper. See, it's the handle and the scooper and the thing. And you go, oh, yeah. It's really hard to look at that Big Dipper again and not see it because it's already been formed. You've already conceptualized that. You've seen that already. And that's the self. It's, it's hard to not see because you've, been, you've seen it so many times. Right? And of course, this is only one side of the coin. What about the relationship you have to the versions of the self that you have? And this is where really the metta vipassana, I feel, takes on a much bigger role where there are all these parts, there's the worried part, the worry self, the, all the versions we, we, we went through. But then there's the part of myself that needs the kindness. You know, there's the uh, abandoned sense of self, or there's the part of myself that is calling for my attention. I say, will you just stop being so mean to me? Uh, could you just be a little bit more kind? Could you be less judgmental? Could you be less critical? And uh, extending the metta to that and say, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, and this is the nature of compassion. The nature of compassion is actually cooperation. That if there's no cooperation, uh, there's, compassion is not an option. So how do we learn to cooperate with these experiences? And then there's the self, the parts of myself that really require, how do I bring compassion to the parts of myself or the experiences of self that need that, that call for that? Asking for compassion. Will you care about me? Do you care about me? And I experience these tremendous aspects of self where when they arise, I'm like, I don't care about you. Actually, I don't even like you. Just go, dude. Like, just get out of here. I'm so done with you. And the whole, you know, that part just gets that message, right? And it's just like, oh, wait till the next opportunity to arise and gets slapped down again. And so again, how do we try to uh, bring compassion into these aspects of ourselves? Or the other side of the coin, it's not all bad, I don't want to go on a suffering uh, trip here tonight, but the, the appreciation, how do we, I think that many people actually have a harder time sometimes with appreciation than they do with compassion. The, how do you learn how to appreciate yourself and your uh, successes that you've made and the ways in which you're doing well and the experiences that you feel grateful for or appreciative or that are pleasant. I don't know about you, I tend to take those ones for granted. You know, if my paradigm, my baseline for life is that I'm supposed to be good at this, 
Then when I am, I just, I'm like, yeah, that's, you don't get credit for that. You're supposed to be doing that. How much self-appreciation do you have? How often does that characteristic come in where you have some success in your life or things are going well, you make a good choice, or you graduate from school, or there's so many different ways in which we have meaning and we feel, uh, do we appreciate that when it happens? Say, oh, good job, I appreciate you. I appreciate you uh, putting the time in and doing the effort and making the choices and following through and accomplishing the thing. No, it's just so we just put that on the stack and well, what's the next thing you have to do? What's the next degree or the next certificate or the next job or the next car or the next thing that you have to get? The self is pretty demanding. Have you noticed that it's quite demanding? I certainly have. So we find that we, you know, if the theme here is bringing awareness and kindness to change and to difficulty and to self, how many variations are there on that theme? Quite diverse. So if we can really try to back it into, well, okay, let's just stay with that theme. Well, from a practice perspective, it's actually really quite uh, simple. It's not esoteric, it's not complex. You could have meditated two or three times in your life and you can start to practice in, the, in this way, in this, in this metta vipassana. And in these characteristics where you're, you're cultivating two qualities, is A, you're training the attention, which is essentially the mechanism in mindfulness, is that we train the attention, we train the attention. Uh, we become aware of uh, the disturbances, we become aware of the benefits, we become aware, we kind of start to learn our way around the territory of the mind and body, um, which is helpful, but it's really only half. And I would argue that it's the, the less liberating half. Right? But trying to integrate kindness into all of that and trying to be more right brain or more emotional brain or trying to access and identify these beautiful spiritual emotions as possibilities. I have these possibilities. Well, I have, these, I have this Buddha, this potential. Buddha translated as uh, being awake, but really being, as being born into this human body, that these are potentials. We have the potential. These are possibilities. This is what you can do. You can do this. Oftentimes said that the Buddha would say, I wouldn't ask you to do it if I didn't know that it was possible for you to do this. And really, we look at our humanity, and I think that um, if pressed, I would, if I had to check off a box, I would rather check off the secular humanist box than the Buddhist box. Because I really feel much uh, more of a, that the practice of the Dharma is really about bracing our humanity and not trying to become good at some technique to have some blissed out privileged experience where we understand the ultimate nature of reality. Um, Good, good luck with that one. 
that of course the ultimate nature of reality is that things are changing, things are difficult, and there's a self thing. And this is like, well, I want to get, I want to beyond, I want to be beyond all that, I want to be above all of that. Uh, but the, the best that we can do is, is we can have generosity and goodwill. Uh, the Buddha said this is a possibility, this is something that, can, that you can do, this, this is good for you, uh, it's good for other people, it's good for the world, cultivate that, do that. You know, Buddhism, I think, is a behavior. It's not a belief system. Do that. Do the generosity. Do the goodwill. Do the kindness. You can do that. You don't have to be that great of a meditation practitioner to do any of those. Do compassion when things are hard. When the self and the emotion and the experience becomes too much, too difficult, do compassion. You can do that. That's the best strategy for, for suffering. It's the best you can do. You can't outsmart it. You can't figure it out. You can't put it in a nice box with a pretty bow and stick it on a shelf somewhere. Uh, you can appreciate. You can... Um, appreciate appreciates an interesting word like when your house increases in value, don't they say it appreciates. So it's like, I like that analogy because it's like, don't you want to increase in value and worth? How do you do that? Well, you appreciate. You, you, you bring a sense of thanks and goodness and appreciation to yourself as in the experiences where that's appropriate, where that's available. And then, of course, we end up in this experience of equanimity, which is ironic that if you look at the heart practices, they, when practiced and cultivated, and when they come into full fruition, they come into the experience of equanimity. When the mindfulness practices, the four foundations of mindfulness practice are practiced and develop and come into full fruition, they also come into the experience of equanimity, which in the fourth foundation of mindfulness is the seventh factor of awakening. So if we're trying to cultivate these awakening factors, the first one, big surprise, is mindfulness. Mindfulness through energy, through tranquility, through concentration, through joy, into equanimity. So I feel very strongly that, you know, I like a good uh, discount, and I feel like Metavipassana is kind of a two-for-one. <laughs> and that traditionally people will separate these practices. And mostly I find that people put more emphasis more importance, more faith, more trust in mindfulness. And my experience with students over the years is that most people actually don't really have much of a heart practice practice. They do it for maybe five minutes at the end of a sit, or they go when they go on retreat, they do go to the four o'clock session, which is usually a 45-minute heart practice. Um, And I think that that's a, been a big disservice to practitioners. Is this idea that mindfulness is totally the best. And like you could totally be kind to it if you feel like it. I don't know, you know, kind of like if you feel like it later on, maybe you could also do these other things. You know, if you look at, uh, if you go, uh, probably 50 books a month come out on mindfulness. And maybe one book a year comes out on, on metta practice or the, the heart. Um, so when we start to 
experience uh, equanimity, which is often taught as a practice, but I find that equanimity is more of a, an outcome of practice. Uh, we could say that practices are put in two categories. There's skills and then there's qualities. So we develop all these skills and we experience these qualities. And uh, equanimity is a quality that is both wise and compassionate. And it allows us to have the, the accurate frame of um, life is uh, tragic and beautiful. There is sorrow, there is happiness. There is joy, uh, there is disappointment. That the, the, the vicissitudes, that there is actually this dialectical paradox of experience, that it's both and. And it's always both and. And this is also the experience of right view. Do we see things clearly? Right view comes from this Pali term, samaditi. And one of the things that's problematic, I think, is that sama is usually translated as right which really helps with the black and white thinking, doesn't it? I either have right view or I have wrong view. I either have right intention or I have wrong intention. But sama actually, from the Pali, uh, means complete. But it would be weird to say you have complete speech, complete effort. But it means complete. It means that you've completed something. It means that you've fully arrived into the cultivation of the Eightfold Path. So you have complete view. Sama Diti, right view, complete view, equanimity. Life is beautiful, life is tragic. Life is painful, life is pleasurable. Sometimes I get what I want, sometimes I don't get what I want. That this is how it is. That's the complete view. And so we could say that actually Dharma is a perspective. It's a way in which we, we see clearly the issue at hand and that we've learned how to respond in a way that decreases harm and decreases suffering for ourselves and others. And that will probably keep you busy on most days. So if you're looking for something to do, you have some free time on your hands, you, you, you could give that a shot. And I think that you would benefit from that, as would the world. So um, I do want to take some questions and have some dialogue. So I want to save some time. We have maybe 20 minutes left. So thank you very much for your attention. Really appreciate uh, you listening and hearing some of these ideas. These are, of course, some of my thoughts and some of the ways that I hold the practice and uh, the benefits that I've experienced and some of the challenges that I continue to face. So I hope that this is useful to you. And uh, so thank you. And uh, happy to hear any questions or really any comments or anything at all that's on your mind about, about any of these ideas. So thank you. Yes, please. Hi, Joe.